It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to take a look at the security news of the week. Maybe uh, throw in a little sci-fi uh, here and there. And then he's going to answer some great questions from you, the members of the audience. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 362, recorded July 25th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 148. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for a 30-day free trial today at GoToAssist.com. Use a promo code SECURITY. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, their privacy, their security online. And we couldn't do it without this guy, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Gibson. Here, let me just move the <laughs> let me move the painkillers out of the way. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't ask you before we began officially. Uh, you are recording this, right? I am recording this, sir. Normally I ask before. No, but, no, uh, no. You need not ask. I have trained professionals now who push the buttons if I'm incapable of doing so. When was it that you recaptured the feed uh, from Justin? Oh, gosh. Yeah. We haven't done that in a while, though. I don't know if we've done that since we moved here. This is now, well, actually, maybe we have. Speaking of which, it's coming up on a year, isn't it? Yesterday was one year, and uh, Dick D. Bartolo flew out. We had a little uh, parade recap party, uh, sheet cake. It was so fun. It has been one year. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. And I'm so happy here. I'm so happy here. We really... Well, my God, you've built yourself a little kingdom. It's fantastic. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I'm the Napoleon of this little kingdom. No, it is so great. And, you know, the real joy of this, and I'm... It sounds insincere, but I'm deeply sincere. The real joy in this is the people I get to work with, like you. I get to talk to you every week. If it weren't for this, I I probably wouldn't. The no, people, we wouldn't. Because we both we're, we're busy. both busy people. Yeah, the people in the studio that I get to. I mean, I just love the team, um, and so that's a real blessing to be able to come to work. Because I know I've been I've been in jobs where I, I had a stomachache every day of going to work, uh, and so it's such a joy to come in here. I had a job once. I was in my mid-20s. I had to put alarm clocks down the hall from the bedroom to uh-huh. the bathroom just uh-huh. to drag me it's bad along. Sign. It's like, oh. Yeah. You've yeah. worked for yourself, though, for almost your entire life, right? Ever since that job, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you see, unlike me, you're smart. You learned a lesson. I had to wait till I was 50 before I, I figured that part out. Oh, uh, but you learned the lesson early. Uh, that, uh, And this is, I think, a really important lesson. And I'm trying to get this into our schools, certainly the high Everybody school. Everybody else is a moron? Is no, it that lesson? Well, shh, that's, the, that's the subtext. But the, but the real lesson is you, you don't learn to get a job. You learn to make a job. And, and not everybody can do this. And certainly uh, I have 25 employees. Thank God they, <laughs> they're employees. But uh, if you can, if you can learn to be the person who creates their own job, 
you will, I think, often be happier. You may not be more wealthy, but you will be happier. Yeah. And, and that, you can have, you know, you can work a lot more and be have periods of stress, but it's at least it's yours. Yeah. It may be small, but it's yours. The only thing worse than, in fact, I remember I, I saw a study years ago of who, who, what people are happiest in their jobs. And it was traffic cops and orchestra conductors were way up there. And it was because they were calling the shots. The thing that makes that's more stressful than anything else is having somebody else tell you, at least it is for me, and I think this is true in general, what to do. That's stressful. Well, and that's why I have a small company and I'm just a really crappy manager. Is <laughs> I can't I I don't want to tell other people what to do. I don't mm -hmm. like looking over people's mm -hmm. shoulders and like Me being too. A manager, right. I hired people back in the day and just wanted them to go, you know, launch and do it. Go. Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they, it would work. It was sort of a, parabola, yeah. a parabolic launch. It would, you know, <laughs> go up and reach its crest and then it would begin coming back down and we'd have a crash landing yeah. about, you know, four or five months later because they just realized, oh, look, if I don't come back for lunch, Steve apparently doesn't notice. Yeah, we but, have that problem here too. <laughs> but see, I did, a, I did a really smart thing. I hired Lisa. And mm. she is a good manager. She knows how to manage teams. And I let her do that. So this is the other lesson. Create yeah. your own job. And then, if you're, and then if you can, hire people to do the parts of it you don't want to do. And that's what I have. I would, it's Sue and Greg famously handled customer support and, and all of the books and bookkeeping and finance right. and stuff. And so I get to do the fun stuff. And, exactly. You know, they're happy that I give them total freedom. Uh, of with scheduling to do right. what they need, so it works exactly. That was the how. That's how Twit happened. By the way, I I wanted to do the shows, but I want my dream, and I thought this was pie in the sky was to do a show like do this show and then get up and walk away and have everybody do the stuff I didn't want to do: produce it, edit it, push it, all that other stuff. And I have it now. It's so cool. Yes, as I said, kingdom, kingdom. You are, but I get to do what Leo. I get to do what I'm good at, and I avoid what I'm bad at. Boy, was I bad at yep. doing taxes. Boy, was I oh, bad I'd at doing in, payroll. I'd be in prison. The IRS. <laughs> I would be not, in prison, too. Not, not because I meant to do anything wrong. I would have intended yeah. to, to write them yeah. that. Like, I just kind of forgotten exactly. about it. Like, oh. Yeah. Anyway, we have security news. And this is a Q&A episode. 148. 148. It is? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, that wasn't a question. Now, how many questions? This is the 148th question and answer episode. Yes, and otherwise we would never finish this <laughs> Only 10 Actually, questions. We haven't started it yet, so perhaps it's fair that we wouldn't finish it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We had a bizarre event since I last spoke to you, which was probably the, mo the single most tweeted observation from the people who follow me and made wanted to make sure that I knew about the news of unbreakable crypto which allows you to store a 30 character password in your brain what? subconsciously what? so that no one can torture it out of you what so like you don't now, even know it you don't know it now the bad news is it doesn't do that oh uh it's not 30 characters. It's a little better than 30 bits. So, oh. unfortunately, the headline, and this was in Extreme Tech, and for whatever, it's, for what it's worth, I'm seeing whatever Extreme Tech talks about, I get tweeted. So we have a huge following of Extreme Tech 
watchers. It's a good site. Um, it was started by Bill McCrone. You remember Bill? Oh, right? of course I know Bill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's as if it, you know he was a he was the former editor in chief of PC Magazine for years. Yep. I don't know who owns Extreme Tech these days, but it is it is it's his idea was let's you know PC Magazine was getting its lunch handed to it by sites like Tom's Hardware and Anand Tech. He said, hey. well, we should do an enthusiast site. And that's that's the result. Extreme oh. tech. So well, this so, is this is the article here. But they got it wrong, unfortunately. They well, they, they yeah, the headline is wrong, and it so it. But it's it. I want to talk about it because what it does. I mean, it is serious neuroscience. It's being presented at this upcoming Usenix conference, and it really does work. So they were a little wrong in in like this 30 character password storage it doesn't do that it actually ha- uh, stores something with an entropy of about 38 bits which is more like six and a half characters but that's not very authentic- strong is it well and it's authentication only oh anyway we'll 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 get into it i imagine you've got a sponsor you want to talk about and then we'll get into our show and we'll do that and uh a bunch of questions. You are so good. <laughs> and what a great tease. Steve Gibson, the explainer-in-chief. Um, and we're going to show you how you can store this in your subconscious, right? Yes, actually. It, there is an online version of this wow. that is a, it's a little Flash app that people can play with. Uh, and it's going to take imagine, me an hour to do this, so I'm not going to do it on the air, but maybe tonight. Yeah, I would imagine that people want to understand what it's about right. that's what i'm going to explain and then they can go look at it if they want to it's it's been referred to as sort of like guitar hero um <laughs> and the way that works but I'll play we'll, the game we'll a little bit that. i'll play it yeah and uh, we'll do our user directed episode of security now this week yay but first a word from citrix uh especially for the it professional out there i know there's a lot of you and you are, I'm sure, using a tool, probably Citrix. It's certainly the most used tool for remote support by a, a large margin. I think uh, it's a plurality, something like 38% compared to the other guys in remote support. But GoToAssist is now even better because they've acquired a company and added a new capability, remote monitoring. And this goes hand-in-hand, hand, if you think about it, with remote support to make you a support hero. If you are an IT person in a business, if you do software support for a living, or if you're interested in creating a business and managed support services, you really need to know about GoToAssist. I'm going to tell you how you could try it free, all of it free for 30 days in just a second. But first, let's take a look at it. Visit GoToAssist.com. We've talked a lot about remote support. It's fast, it's secure, it's cross-platform, PC and Mac and mobile devices. You can literally support people from an iPad or an iPhone. Unattended support, up to eight sessions at the same time, all of those features. This is the new part, the monitoring module. Because if you can watch what's going on on your customers or clients or uh, support ease systems, you can often fix the problem before it's a problem, saving you time, making you look kind of magic. They've got server health monitoring, inventory management, network tracking. You could set up your own alerts. It all starts by putting this crawler on the system. The GoToAssist crawler automatically detects everything. It says all devices on your network, but it's not just devices. It's software, too. All the hardware, all the software, all the network-attached devices. You've got this great inventory list, and now... You could set up a customized dashboard, say things like, well, monitor the hard drives 
to make sure they don't get below 10% free space. Or take a look at network activity, and when saturation is better than 80%, I want an SMS message. I want an instant messenger message. I want an email. You could display, display tr uh, stats, track, and trend key metrics like CPU, load averages, memory, and disk utilization. It's all there. And this makes you, I'm telling you, a support hero. Because as soon as there's a problem, boom, you fire up the remote support module, you fix it. We, you know, Russell Tammany, our IT guy, uses a similar tool. We gave him go to assist, and he said this is so much less expensive and so much more powerful. He's actually worked with these guys to add features to make it even better. I love this. By the way, he does manage support services. He has over 300 clients. There's a three-man shop. And it's, it's, it's the tools that make it possible. Plans and pricing, very affordable. But here's the deal. You get a 30-day free trial right now. If you visit gotoassist.com, click the Try It Free button, and you'll see there's a space for a promo code. You actually have to click a link uh, that says promo code. Yes. And put in security. That's all. Just not, they're not even security now. Just security. As the promo code and spell it right. I spelled it wrong. Security, and we will get credit, and that's a good thing because we want to make sure Steve gets credit for uh, for the new client. Try it free for thirty days. Go to assist.com. Use the offer code security, and let me know what you think. Steve Gibson, time to plant something subliminal in my mind. Okay, so it, this is very cool. And sort of tangentially security related. The idea is that neuroscientists have long known that it's possible to teach us things sort of like muscle memory in, in, in the way that, you know, like when you're learning to play tennis, you have to be very conscious about everything you do, where your feet are, how you move, where your balance is, how you're gripping your racket. You know, I mean, it's like, it's very conscious. And if you're serious about the game, you'll get a, you'll get a pro to work with you and look at you and sort of get you started down the right path. But what happens is that after some length of time, that becomes unconscious or subconscious. That is, you, you, you're directing yourself at a higher level and it's you know it's often called muscle memory where it's it's hey, uh, not actually no muscle, muscle in my brain it's not actually your muscles that are remembering but it, it's those sort of subroutines are established and then you're calling them rather than running them by hand to use a, a computer analogy so so what some uh, th this was neuroscience meets cryptography and the title of the paper is a little worrisome uh it's i mean i'm not kidding you neuroscience meets cryptography designing crypto primitives secure against rubber hose oh dear attacks. so <laughs> and, of, and of course a rubber hose attack is the is the slang for you know Torture. hitting somebody yeah exactly hitting somebody over the head or where somewhere to get um to get them to tell you what uh secrets they have so what they what these guys designed is a means for training people on a sequence of events such that they're unaware of the sequence 
but they on, on a subconscious level they they become better at following one sequence than another and so this for example you don't have the ability to simply sit down and type out a password that you're not consciously aware of so the way this the way the system would work is you would first authenticate yourself normally you would use a username and password um, things that you know maybe even something that you have but then this next level of authentication would it would know who you're claiming to be and it would know the sequence that you had previously been trained on so this is all kind of you know born you know jason born sort of stuff um and the idea is it would it would give you a a a sequence of events that you respond to knowing what you're supposed to be better at that is that you have been previously trained to be better at than somebody trying to impersonate you and what they found was it works that is uh, so what's online and our listeners can play with it it's brainauth.com/training and if you go there, you skip around a couple initial screens. If you just go to brainauth.com, there's this strange thing about how you're going to get paid five dollars. And, oh, and well, then, there and now you've convinced me. <laughs> but there's a disclaimer saying, "Oh, whoa, whoa, uh, we're not doing that anymore." So ignore, ignore that. <laughs> it's like oh, okay, All or right. just go to slash training. Oh, anyway, oh, apparently, oh, 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 whoa, 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 it's going so fast, I can't keep up. It's like Guitar what, Hero. What what they were doing was initially they would pay. They were soliciting people to train up on the sequences for their research, and when they finished it, they would get a coupon that was redeemable for five dollars. Uh. And so they were offering five bucks, probably for some, you know, students at Northwestern. Uh, th this is a guy at Stanford, uh, some people at Northwestern and SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, put to get put this whole thing together. So what you'll see there is um, is six columns and <laughs> these, this, as I am at Guitar Hero. <laughs> yeah, and 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 these <laughs> these circles drop, yeah. on, and, and the columns are A, D, F, and J, K, L which are two groups of three keys on the keyboard. And so the idea is you're you're you know it's choosing what drops in what sequence and you you're you're supposed to be pressing the keys uh, at the right time to get these things to drop into the holes th that are down at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So so with six symbols what they were trying to do is they're trying to build associations between so uh, temporal associations between pairs and triplets and quadruplets. It's too hard. So, <laughs> I can't so, do it. I can't so do it. <laughs> where this 30-character thing came from is actually what's known as the, as, as, as the Euler walk. If you take six things and you, you draw interconnecting bidirectional arrows between each one and every other one in so, sort of a big star formation... Then the Euler walk traverses each path through that exactly once. And so that does result in a 30-object sequence. And so what happens is this thing, when, when you're using it, it 
arbitrarily chooses an Euler walk through this six-character alphabet, essentially. Euler is E-U-L-E-R, like the Euler constant? Exactly. Okay. Somebody's a famous mathematician. Way old, way and, old guy, and long dead. But he, he like, would he would hate this game. <laughs> what are you he, doing? He explored all these things a long time right. ago. So um, anyway, so what happens is without you being aware, and 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 this also throws in non-training sequence events. So you're uh-huh. not just training up on exactly that Euler walk. It, it sort of it throws it deliberately throws in other things. And the point is. You don't know, thus, what parts of what is happening on the screen is part of the secret sequence you're being trained and what isn't. So you're never given it. You're never explicitly told, here is your 30-character 30, 30 sequence. Instead, you just play this game several times for 30, 30 to 45 minutes, they say in their paper – um, and they, they 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 run through it a number of times. Then they wait a week, and then they and and they, they wait one week and they test you again, and two weeks and test you again. And what they found was there's some loss of retention after the first week, but then it sort of flattens out, um, and you don't lose nearly as much in the second week. And and it's sticky enough that. They're claiming it could be used for authentication, and so, so again. But, how, but I mean, I don't know it consciously, the the keystrokes, but somehow I can trigger it. Well, um, no. The idea would be that that you're you're actually getting better, even though you're not thinking, Leo, that you're very good at that I'm right terrible now. Terrible at it. Yeah. You did spend. I bet a pianist did, would be very good at it. If you did spend an hour. There would be things it would be deliberately doing, like yeah. SKD. No, I'm recognizing some patterns, actually. I do see and some no, things repeat, yeah. Right. And so you wouldn't be able to to speak it necessarily. Right. But your body, your body and, like, those lower levels of your aut- 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 autonomic nervous system stuff, yes, yes. Yeah. it would be sort of acquiring... A, a a bias, and that's really what this is. It is. It's, I have a bias towards doing it right. That's right. It, yeah. Yeah, it's giving you a bias towards things that you, it has deliberately caused you to expect. And so at some time in the future, it could test you for that bias, and you would have a particular bias. Oh, I see. So it would give you the same game again. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's why it couldn't recognize you from a crowd. Right. But if it thinks you're if you're if if you're claiming to be you, then it could test I should be better at this than somebody off the street. Exactly. In you, this particular you, well, sequence you, you should, that I get again and yes, again. You, yeah. you 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 should be better at the one particular pattern right. that you had been previously exposed to. Right. Thus the Jason Bourne sort of Yeah. Now. He doesn't so, yeah. know. He doesn't know he's Jason Bourne. But right. he is. He, he triggers. Um, yeah. This and is going to drive me insane. I can't stop. <laughs> so S-I-S-L, Serial Interception Sequence Learning. Uh, anyway, that's what that is. Many people sent li- the link from Extreme Tech to me, and I also wanted to thank them and acknowledge it and, and you know, explain that unfortunately it's not storing a 30-character password in your brain, but it is – it's creating a – 
something unique in you that nobody else would have that could at a later date be checked for. That makes perfect and, sense. That makes perfect yeah. sense. And 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 uh, and the the uh, the NSA couldn't suddenly come to you and say, "Okay, what's your what's your sequence?" Because you don't you have no idea. Exactly. That makes sense. And yeah, it is and muscle memory because I would guess it's probably as much muscle as it is brain. I don't know. I I think at some point after about thirty minutes you kind of probably zone out and you do. You just, it's not yeah. You just sort of start doing this and exactly. you know you're thinking about other things while yeah. you're continuing to try to press the right keys and it it probably actually does you know s- sink into your subconscious. It's a, there's a seventeen page PDF if anyone really wants to go into this. If you just put in. Uh, Probably rubber hose crypto. It's <laughs> pretty much a unique phrase. Uh, yeah, I think that Google will find it for you, and it's a, it's interesting. It's uh, I mean, all, you pretty much know all you're going to find out from having just li- listened to this from me. But um, they said uh, a cross disciplinary team of U.S. neuroscientists and cryptographers have developed a password slash passkey system that removes the weakest link. In any security system, the human user, it's ingenious. The system still requires that you enter a password, but at no point do you actually remember the password. Now, here again, this is I'm quoting from Extreme Tech, where they don't quite understand. They what thought because it was thirty characters that it was somehow thirty. Yes, characters. and you're you're not entering a password. Right. You are demonstrating a bias. Right. Sort of a statistical bias which only you have. So you first have to tell it who you are, then it's able to challenge that assertion with sort of an additional step of authentication. So anyway, it's very cool. Yeah, and, if you uh, were really Leo Laporte, you would perform 10%. It's probably a small amount, 10% better at this than Yeah, uh, they've, got charts and, they've got charts and graphs, and it's enough better that, that Statistically, I mean, it's useful. Yeah. Uh, that I, you could imagine some really over-the-top super It is secret. about 10%. This is interesting. 8.6% difference. Yes. <laughs> it's that close. Yes. Yeah. It's very interesting. And they used Mechanical Turk to do this. Did you know that? Yeah. On yeah, Amazon. On Amazon. That's really interesting. What a good way to get research uh, subjects. Wow. I yeah. love it. Yeah. So, um, a little sci-fi By the way, in their, in their uh, bibliography, among other things, this is where the rubber hose comes from. An article on CNET, Turkish police may have beaten encryption key out of TJ Maxx suspect. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they, maybe they named it appropriately. Yeah, I'm yeah. afraid maybe they did. Wow. Um, I wanted to give our listeners a bit of a sci-fi update. Um, I did read... Those last two, the most recent two, Lost Fleet, Beyond the Frontier novels. I mentioned after having only read, I think I was in the maybe two-thirds through the first one, which was Dreadnought, that it was really sort of disappointing me. I wanted to mention just for those who had read the first six, that seven and eight, seven is a little slow, but eight really picks it up. And uh, I, I'm... Not sure why I'm not as enthusiastic about it as I was the initial ones. I don't want to lead anyone on, but it was it was good. And so, if you're looking for something to read and you like that the um, the the um, the Lost Fleet series uh, seven and eight are are useful, and Invincible, which is the last one, uh, was better. 
And uh, I'm now in the process of Kill Decision, which is Ooh, Daniel like Suarez. That? Yeah, yeah. I'm just just starting. It's it's back. I'm back on my stair climber again. Um, I'm working myself back into shape. Um, I was I, I really had some substantial keto adaption uh, period. I was having oh. to drink a lot of bouillon in order to keep from from just dehydrating and cramping. You were feeling and weak. I'm, I'm past that phase now. I no longer I wean myself from the bouillon, uh, and I'm fine. So I thought, okay, now I'm going to start getting back into shape. I just while this was going on, I didn't want to, you know, really uh, tweak myself too hard with my workout. So I I backed off on that. But so uh, Daniel Suarez is uh, so far it's really interesting. I just like his writing. It's uh, it's good stuff. It is not a trilogy. It, going from uh, the first two books, it's unrelated. That, uh, yeah, it's unrelated. Yeah. Although, again, very, it's good cyber stuff. It's good tech. It's good military. I mean, so it's a nice read. I, I, I am enjoying it. Um, and I did want to mention that uh, Jenny and I saw the amazing, the amazing Spider-Man the other day, and it's I thought the best 3D that I've seen so far. I was more impressed with it for some reason, even than Avatar. I thought, it, and Prometheus, I, I saw both in 3D, and I was not that blown away by them. But The Amazing Spider-Man, I liked. I've liked all the Spider-Man movies, you know, Toby's movies. And uh, and this one was good, too. So uh, if anyone is, <laughs> is curious. Um, and I did get a nice note from a John Newcomb, who's a listener of ours. He said, Dear Steve, just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate all the great info I get from your podcast with Leo Laporte. You guys are a great team. I recently bought a copy of Spinrite that I've added to my bag of tricks. I'm a computer tech and work for a company who services the dental industry. Spinrite has already saved me a lot of time. I was in an office the other day working on a machine that would not fully boot windows. I ran Spinrite and it recovered several bad sectors, which then allowed me to image the drive and install a new one. Thank you for making my job so much easier. Your software works so well. In using it and observing it, all the little de- and observing all the little details, I think it's clear how much care you put into its design and development. Sincerely, John Newcomb. So, thank you, John. I appreciate the feedback well and letting our listeners know. Well done. You know, we don't have another ad, so let's get right to the questions. Are you ready, sir? I'll be ready. I'll be ready. But I'm not, so wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> oh, I did want to mention why, while you're getting ready, Leo, yes. um, that many people, uh, many of our listeners have had tremendous physical benefits from uh, experimenting with very low-carb stuff. I, I had a bunch of tweets that I was considering sharing, but I thought, oh, I don't want to. But I don't want to clutter up security now with that. But remember that SGVLC is my Twitter feed. If anyone is interested, I mean, to hear real listeners talk about many tens, twenties, thirties, fifties pounds of weight that they've lost, blood pressure normal for the first time in their adult life, and all kinds of other good stuff. Do 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 a search uh, on SGGLC uh, and take a look at those. Yeah, I kind of surprised my doctor today. He said, "Wow, <laughs> you're looking good." So, thank you very much. <laughs> you are actually. I've noticed too. I feel good. You look great. Yeah. Question number one for Mr. Gibson from Brian Finn in New Hampshire. 
Hi, Steve. After thinking about all the precautions you've discussed in the past and the best way to protect ourselves, it occurs to me that much protection is going to be wiped out by the switch to apps, which is really ongoing, isn't it? Not only on mobile, but also on the desktop. Using the iPad negates LastPass. It's a nuisance, but doable in Safari. However, it's impossible to use LastPass in an app. While it may be possible to craft clever passwords, I believe the inevitable result will be to go back to our old habits using the same password everywhere. And I have to say, I think he's probably right. Maybe I'm paranoid, but this looks like the next big thing, apps. What do you and Leo think? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I'm having the same experience. Yeah. It, it's fabulous on, you know, in a browser mode where you're logging into sites. And, I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm so happy having LastPass there. But, the you know, my iPad that is probably the app or, the, you know, the app, environment where i spend most of my time when i'm you know off at starbucks in the morning reading and and poking around and doing research uh there are you can do sort of and i tried it for a while actually it was on the ipad 2 where i used some javascript snippets in order to invoke LastPass and and try to but it was like so awkward that i didn't even bother doing it when i switched to the ipad 3 it's like okay i just you know and there they have been moving LastPass has been moving their own browser forward there's a LastPass tab it's called which is an ipad you know a nice ipad browser so of course it it brings LastPass to a web environment but as you said or as brian said you know, we're we're generally more app centric. One of the things that I find annoying, frankly, because I've already got so many apps, is that when I'm surfing with the iPad, now the sites I go to are all pumping their own app. You know, it's like, oh, get the Slate app. I know. Oh, I hate the, that. I, hate I do that. too. It's like I don't want no, an app I'm for here a in site. The browser, give me the page. Yes, and so sometimes you, you 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 like close it and it comes back, or oh, you change pages and it comes so back again, and it's like, oh please. It's funny too because I just, uh, there was a, a comment in the mailbag about somebody actually it was Jar, uh, Jared who who sends me a lot of stuff asking about spoofing user agent, and I was thinking, boy, you know, I'd like to be spoofing my user agent because that's that's <laughs> I'll generally spoof your user agent. <laughs> what does that mean, spoofing your user agent? Well, the user agent is. Part of the request header that browsers send out to tell the server what it is. You know, like it used to be in the old days they would they would disclose the screen resolution. Now they'll say, I'm iOS and Safari on an iPad, blah, blah, blah. And so that's how these sites know that you're in mobile mode. And in fact, one of the things I find annoying is I'm unable to authenticate with paypal when i'm mobile and i've and i want to get something through ebay on paypal because the mobile version of paypal gets all tangled up because i've got multiple one-time password things i still have the football from the old days and i've got the vip um, the VeriSign identity protection running on my BlackBerry. So I've got mobile, you know, six-digit changing, you know, time-based changing code. But that requires an extra step in authenticating because you've got to tell it which one of the devices you want to authenticate with. 
and the mobile version doesn't understand that. And so, and and once for a while they had like a button to like go to the non-mobile site. It's like, oh, thank you. That's gone now. They upgraded and they, they, they took it away. So I'd like to be able to tell them, no, no, this is not, I'm not on an iPad. I'm on a, you know, IE on Windows. But, and so, and that's information that comes through the user agent, which is where the browser right. declares what it is. So it would be nice to be able to spoof that. And in fact, I think LastPass, the LastPass tab browser does offer you that option. Oh, that's nice. That's so, a yeah, separate browser for LastPass Pro users. A, yes, exactly. And worth taking a look at if you're really a committed LastPass person and you're an iPad user, uh, because it does give you access to LastPass, the la your LastPass database sync through the cloud, secure as we know it is, um, uh, with websites. But you know, I'm I still like I just sort of you know like to use Safari. It's well, there. Apple kind of pushes you that way because you can't it's change really the default fun. browser. So when you click a yep. link, you're going to get Safari. You know, it's Chrome just, has, and this is one of the nice reasons to download Chrome on iOS. It has a menu item request desktop version. So you oh, can nice. in Chrome on uh, on iPad and I think on iPhone too. Say, give me the desktop. I don't want the mobile version. Give me the desktop. Wait, you wait. Download Chrome on your iPad as opposed to it's available Safari. for the iPad. Oh, Chrome, 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 Google Chrome. Google Chrome. Yeah. Ah. So that is a nice feature of, of Google Chrome. Yeah. Um, but Brian's right. I mean, as we are being pushed away from a a web centric mode in our mobile devices, well, we got to push think, back. We can't let people. Yeah. This is annoying. Yeah. For other reasons, you know, free I think a free and open web is important. Yeah, and I like I mean I like the idea that the model that Google has has initiated and other people are following of the of the web browser being your portal, th that there's a lot about that that works. Yep. Yep, that's how it should be. But uh you can't put you know, can't control the advertising as well. That's the issue, no. of course. <laughs> Jay Atkinson in Sydney, Australia, was left with a coddling question. Gentlemen, I have a problem. I find the information you provide intensely interesting. Yes, that is a problem. But there is a cure. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm being facetious. <laughs> and I often find myself wanting to talk through the content of the netcast to confirm that I understood what's been discussed. That's a good idea. Get a Security Now buddy, listen together, and then afterwards say, okay, this is what I understood. And then he could say, well, this is what I understood. My problem is following in uh, along with 357, I realized the very limited number of friends I have with, with, with whom I could discuss the netcast without them glazing over and sending them into an information-induced coma. So I'm very cautious to control my enthusiasm and choose my audience carefully when discussing anything Security Now related. You just need better friends, Jay. Any mention of Uncle Stevie Gibson or Leo in my household already has my six-year-old rolling her eyes. She'll come around. But I know that this is the safe forum for posing such questions. So, I love this, Steve. This is I don't care what his question is. This is great. Can you provide an explanation as to how they came up with the hard limit of five milliseconds in 100 milliseconds in relation to the buffer coddling algorithm? Oh, I'm glad he didn't ask me that. <laughs> As on the face of it, it seems an arbitrary timing. Do you see any reason these timings would be needed to be reviewed in the future? Thanks, gents. Leo, hope to catch up on your way down this way later in the year. I will, Jay, be in Sydney uh, on uh, November 7th. And uh, uh, I think, uh, is it Brisbane? I think Brisbane on November 9th. 
Jay Atkinson, Magulagum, Sydney, Australia. Your so, response, uh, Yeah. So, great question. And, uh, and I know, Jay, many of our listeners can sympathize. Relative to the 5 milliseconds in 100 milliseconds, we'll remember that what that was in the coddling algorithm was their criteria for whether or not to start dropping packets at an accelerated pace. If sometime during 100 milliseconds, the, the delay through the buffer ever got down to 5 milliseconds, then the algorithm was happy with, with leaving things alone. But if at no time during 100 milliseconds was the buffer ever was the delay through the buffer ever at or lower than 5 milliseconds then the algorithm would worry that that it needed to start sending some messages back to the alg- to, to the protocols that were sending data through the buffer that they needed to back themselves off a little bit so so this uh, th- th- this allowed bursts to occur but not long-term overuse of the buffer those timings were arrived at empirically just through ex- lots of modeling and testing. But the five milliseconds in a hundred actually comes from our real world experience. It is an amount of time which, when multiplied by the number of hops packets need to traverse, still makes the internet feel responsive. So the idea is we want we want both to be able to be downloading blocks of data, you know, big video streams and things um, where we really don't need interactivity. We don't need real-time round-trip interactivity, but we also want to be able to be playing games with, you know, shared servers. And we want to be able to click on a link and have the page immediately start loading and populating. So we have we have differing priorities, but for us humans, if we take five milliseconds times a number of hops, we'll get we'll 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 keep the sense that it's that the internet is working, that it's fast enough, that that something hasn't broken, and that's where that came from. Is just I mean it's it's we as humans, and what do we ask if if we, if we were all just big you know. Uh, non-interactive, huge streams of data moving autonomously, no one would care if buffers got deep and fat. Um, that wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, we want, we want the Internet to still feel reactive to us. And so that's the key, is to keep those buffers small so that, so that our intentions don't take long to get somewhere and the responses to get back. So his question actually is legit because that might change when bandwidth th- uh, things situations change and so forth. Yes or no? Well, no, and that's what's so cool about this is this is bandwidth independent. This is based on ah. time. So as bandwidth increased, then the buffers could be deeper, but and they would automatically deepen. Ah. Is, but because then, t- but the time factor would stay the same, and that's the genius of this: is that it's based not on bandwidth and not on you know particular buffer packet size or lengths, 
but just on time. And time, the, the interactivity of our experience is really what we're trying to preserve. And, and this does that. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. I love, I love it when uh, big minds solve problems. You know, and, and really think about this stuff. Well, and this thing is decades old, this problem. I mean, this is... this It's is, about time we this, fixed this, it. This has confounded the best minds for <laughs> quite a while. And then these guys finally said, okay, we really need to sit down and figure this out. And they did. Uh, two questions in a row here, so hang on. First from Carlos Alfaro in Rockaway Beach, New York, about iOS and Android security. Steve and Leo love the show, been listening since episode one. <clears throat> own Spinrite, etc., etc. I know that both the iPhone and Android have their own implementation of sandboxing and memory protection to protect or prevent applications from getting to the information they shouldn't have access to. But uh, looking over the security, uh-oh, let me, let me make this a little small. We got a page boundary. <laughs> yeah, looking over the security. Ah, here it is. It does this to me every time. Model. <laughs> and then it reformats. Okay, let's see. Uh, let's view this as a single continuous scroll. Thank you. Just have to tell Preview how to do it. Uh, looking over the security model for both platforms, I wonder whether they are really secure. <sighs> An example of my concern would be using um, a banking application to access a bank or credit card institution. Now, how would I know that another application is not getting my username and password. If you read the permissions some applications ask for, uh, you know, it's out of control. Some apps require permission to read the state of the phone and see the number you're dialing. They can see your contact list. This is more so, I would say, on... Um, you get these granular permissions on Android, not so much on iOS. We don't really know what they're asking for on iOS. Um, they can see your contact list, maybe even copy it. They can record sound, even re phone conversations. A scary one is they can turn on the camera... And take both pictures and video even when you're sleeping, which used to be the case with IMDb <laughs> on Android. The Internet Movie Database asked for permission so the application could turn on the camera and take pictures. They use the GPS to determine locations, course or find setting, and others. Now, I know these permissions are not needed by some of the apps requesting them. And I know it does not mean that just because they have permission, they'll use those permissions. I guess they look at all that information to monetize it. No, it's more complicated. I can explain why they have to ask for those permissions. So finally, my question is, can I trust either Android or iOS to allow me secure access to my bank and other secure sources of information? Because I am not sure I have never used my Android phone for that purpose. I carry a USB stick with Ubuntu Linux all the time just for that. So I've removed all applications that ask for permissions other than what I think is necessary for them to fulfill the purpose for which I installed them. Thanks again for looking at my question, and I apologize for such a long email. Carlos Alfaro, Rockaway Beach, New York, and Brian Tannehill of Overland Park, Kansas. Same kind of thing. I heard the news item a couple of weeks ago about Microsoft telling us to abandon and disable desktop gadgets in the sidebar because they're insecure. <laughs> Five years later. I'm amazed at how everything is riddled with security vulnerabilities. I want to know, is it feasible to produce a reasonably secure operating system? Or is this, this nonsense going to continue forever? Okay, so, Tannehill. yeah. Um, my sense is, and, and I'm sure you're seeing this and, and probably feel it, and our listeners I'm sure do too, um, we're still, as an industry, trying to work these things out. 
I mean, uh, you were just talking about, uh, I think it's before we began, that gate, uh, the new gatekeeper in um, iOS 10 or um, uh, Mac OS 10. Mountain Lion. Uh, yeah. Mountain Lion. And how it's, you know, it's causing uh, some problems for users who aren't used to it because it's additional protections that have been built in. Um, the mobile platform is is in general somewhat frightening. You know, we've covered uh, throughout the years problems with uh, apps misbehaving, with permissions not being handled correctly, so on. I mean, so there's the problem of the platform itself not properly restricting controls um, with mistakes being made there. Then there's, um, as our first questioner asked, there's the problem of of apps, ask, you know, overly broad asking for permission. My pet peeve that we've discussed a couple times is the way the um, uh, the authentication platform OAuth, where, for example, you, you you quote, you know, sign in using your Facebook credentials, where you bounce over to another site. And then come back. My, I'm annoyed that sometimes apps, you know, where all you want to do is let them, is, is allow them, to, or, or for example, uh, Twitter is another example where you want to, you know, sign in using your Twitter account. They'll say, oh, well, uh, this, the, the site you're coming from asking for authentication on Twitter wants to be able to post to your Twitter stream. It's like, no. Right. That's not what I want to give it permission for, but you'd have no control. You can't say, yes, authenticate me, but don't allow it to do those things. It's it's not an option on the screen. So, you know, so I, I, I do think it, it it's going to take, as you said, Leo, it's going to take user pushback to some degree. It's going to take applications. The, the, the other thing that I see is sort of a, just a, a, uh, an egocentricity on the part of developers who who all feel that their app is you know God's gift to the platform and and their users are going to want to give it all these permissions so that it can do all these amazing things. There was a story the other day about how Google, I think it was a Google R and D project, would be looking out of your camera phone to sort of see where you were and what was going on. And it would be able to recognize if you were at the beach and, be, and start feeding you beach ads. And, I mean, it would, like, know if you were if there were baby strollers around and then give you ads relative to those. And it's just, you know, some of these things get a little bit creepy feeling. Yeah. And, and these guys got to be aware of this. And I agree, more granularity. Part of the reason that apps sometimes ask for overly broad permissions is because that's how it's set up by the companies doing the uh, APIs. Is that right? Those, those are the only ch- uh, that's uh, your the choice. Only things that they're given right. yes. So uh, one thing would be for Google and, and uh, Apple to have more granular APIs where they could say, "Okay, you can do this. If you want to do this, ask for this. You don't have to ask for all of that, and so forth." And I guess th- then, and then of course the 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 back pressure on that because arguably at some level. If even if everything was done right, if everything was bug free, if there were no problems in the platform, if there were no malicious applications that were going to be abusing this, then you still got the issue of users being annoyed 
by be by being asked anything. Right. You know, some users are just like, oh, don't ask me anything. Just do. Just go. And whereas there they're are going to have uh, to get over that. <laughs> yes. <you're> Sorry. Right. <laughs> you can't have both. You can't have apps that don't bug users and have privacy and security. You got to have one or the other. And I think there's more of us who care about privacy and security than people who say, oh, just do it. And then the other thing you would like is that instead of an app saying you must agree to all these things or we won't work, right. you'd like it'd be nice if the apps w would say, right. here's what we want and here's the features that are associated with those needs. And you can turn off the ones right. you don't want to provide and still use everything else. Right. And I, I think that Android is moving in that direction. I think they've made Google has made some noise saying, "Yeah, we want to we want to give not only more granularity, but give people the chance to turn stuff down." And just the app just can't do that particular thing. But it doesn't mean you don't get the app; you just get a more limited app. Well, I have to say that I am really impressed with the the two hundred dollar Nexus Seven. Yeah. Uh, little tablet. I mean, it's it's a beautiful tablet. I was unimpressed with the Fire, but this is the first Android tablet that I thought, wow, this thing, I mean, it is nice. And I do like the idea, much as I am an iOS and iPad fanboy, I mean, I acknowledge it. It's it. I love what Apple has done, but we know from having seen so much history here that that Apple needs some competition. And so I love the idea that that Google with the Android platform could be establishing some standards of behavior that that Apple, even though, you know, Apple has a reputation for ignoring everybody else. You know, if there is if there is push, then, you know, Apple will will respond. So, yeah, it would be good. You know, yeah. to, well, to I think they are. I think the rumors are strong. They're going to do it. A tablet of this roughly this size. Yeah, um, although I, I, I'm not a 16 by 9 person. I really like 4 by 3. I just, well, that's what Apple's going to do. That's what you're good in luck. That, uh, <laughs> so that's why I bring it up is it's going to be 1024 by 768 in a 7-inch in a, um, you know, form factor. Uh, we should say this is all rumor and speculation. Yes. Apple has not yes. said anything that it's going to do. Um, this I kind of I don't mind sixteen nine because it's a little thinner and taller, right? So it can slip into pockets and so forth. Yeah, true, and it, it is more oriented toward media, um, and my bias is more toward reading. So. Yeah, well, that, but this is good for a book too, isn't it? It's very yeah, much like the no. Kindle. Pages, yeah. Well, uh, no, no. If you do the it, Kindle it, is much more square. Is it, it? the 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 fire is also sixteen by nine by nine? It's like reading in a long column. It ah. just uh, it doesn't work as well for me. Really? Because this seems like roughly the page of a paperback would be. Maybe it's too tall. Too tall. Too tall for you, huh? Yeah, yeah. well, compared to four, but three, uh, four, four by three, I think, is a nice compromise. Because then, you know, you could still do media. You, you just lose some, some pixels on the top and bottom. Yeah. I don't know. I think this is pretty doable. I think one thing that both all of these have again uh, over uh, traditional books is you can change the font size to make it just the right comfort level for you so you oh, can I'm, read i'm a i'm an ebook reader i mean yeah, i you I know as, as you know you were talking about my palm pilots that are in the refrigerator before we began recording <laughs> you're never going to use I, those. I was reading i was reading books on those but isn't this better than a palm pilot come on oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say i do believe that uh 
that that transition is happening now. For a long time, I thought, oh, no, you know, paper books. But it, my generation will never give them up. My generation is giving them up. I see e-readers everywhere now, everywhere yep. I go. People love the convenience. They love the lightweight, you know, ability to carry dozens of books. Magazines, too. I think that that's turned out. I don't read magazines, but for people who do, that's turned out to be a big Part of oh, this platform is reading, yes, and reading I magazines. mean that, avoiding that throwaway paper. Oh, makes I love so that! Much, yeah. So much sense. I'm so guilty. I'm a guilty New Yorker subscriber. Oh, I just want to read it. I don't need the paper. I don't need to make a coffee table out of them. And I think there are people also who, like myself, we enjoy. I, I like holding the, the thing. I like right. the technology. I mean, I was you know jonesing for these things when Captain Kirk and Spock had them, <laughs> and, and you know. And and Uhura would bring the tablet over and 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 Kirk mm-hmm. would sign off on the the you know commissary <laughs> or whatever it was he was they you know, they hadn't it, figured out that styluses styluses are dead. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, Uhura. Let me just uh, prove that. There we go. He was always signing something. He was. You know? He was always signing a tablet. <laughs> Brandon Hamilton, Rockford, Illinois, writes. I'm worried about password security if the length is known. Oh, interesting. When it comes to brute forcing a password, we know the longer the password, the longer it takes to crack it. But what happens if somebody knows the password is X number of characters long? For example, somebody wants to hack an account on a site that has a password requirement of at least eight characters. They know the password is at least eight characters long, so they don't bother brute forcing five, six, seven character passwords, reducing the amount of time needed to crack it. Same holds true, for instance, if a person or entity learned a TrueCrypt password was 30 characters long, they wouldn't bother forcing all the possibilities from 1 to 29. Wouldn't that significantly reduce the time needed to brute force a password? But how would one go about calculating this to determine if a password is still safe from centuries of brute forcing or if it would now be cracked in a few years, thanks to the time you two put into producing a great show. I put no time into it. It's all Steve. <laughs> What's the answer, uh, Steve? But you show up every I week. I show up know? roughly every week at 11. <laughs> so, um, the, I mean, there's no mystery to this. And, in fact, one of the things that I appreciate is when I see applications and websites that deliberately hide the true length of your password you know, sometimes they'll put up just a bunch of dots to sort of represent the fact that you need to enter your password rather than leaving the field um, the field empty. But they deliberately don't even show the length because it is understood sort of implicitly that, oh, you know, if you knew how long it was, that would give you a leg up on cracking it. Um I immediately thought when I was reading this of the password haystacks page because, you know, it's all about the size of the dictionary and the length of the password. And what I did when calculating the length of time required to crack a password and and from that or before that, the total number of combinations is I I did the math of of the number of combinations with a single character plus the number of combinations with two characters plus the number of combinations with three characters and so on. So I did the sum of all the numbers of possible passwords of all shorter size up to and including the one that the user entered. And that because the, the 
the theorem or the thesis that I was working on was that a, a true brute forcer would start with A and then try B and then C, run through that and then go A, 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 B, A, C, A, D and so forth in order to go all the way up. But Brandon's right. If you knew that a site said passwords must be 12 characters long minimum, then you would no brute forcer would try passwords of 1 through 11 characters. They would just start at 12. The real but, question is how much time does that save really compared to what solving that 30 character password is going to take? Right. And it it actually turns out not to save much time. Uh-huh. Because because Every character you add multiplies the the length of time by the size of the character set, which is typically like 96. So it's 96 times 96 times 96. And if you so even if you know the minimum, you still you 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 are still having to go from there up to whatever their maximum is. And if and, and Brandon, if you're curious, you can use the Haystacks page to easily see that. So, for example, put in a large character set 11-character password and look at the number of combinations that the Haystack page reports, then type one more character and look at that and subtract the first one from the second one. And that will give you the number just for that, for example, if you put in 11 characters and then, and then added one to make it 12, well, subtract the value, the, the number calculated for 11 from the value calculated for 12, and you'll see that it's going to be, what, like uh, on the order of 1%, yeah. something like that. A little more than 1% is, is, is what you're going to be losing. So the bottom line is we have s- it's such an astronomically large number to solve yes. long passwords, we can give up a little bit, and it's still impossible. Yep. Yep. Not, not impossible. Uh, Time-consuming, to the point of absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Brochel in Ottawa, Canada, wonders about, I like this, elliptical curve crypto. I had a question I was hoping your expertise could help me with. I'm a software developer investigating some licensing software, and I came across the term elliptic curve cryptography. Suspicious of any cryptographic algorithm I've never heard of, I did some research, and somewhat surprisingly, I, what I read seemed to make sense on a security level, as this cryptography works the same way as standard public key crypto, with a hard math problem, often the integer factorization problem, but instead uses the discrete logarithm of elliptic curves. Ever heard of this? Is it secure? Okay, so, yes. Clever. Um it is, it is actually in the crypto community very well known. Mm-hmm. It is the currently most actively researched by the academic guys uh, public crypto system uh, that we have. It, uh, what's interesting about it is that the, the computational complexity is lower, yet the apparent and well-tested and believed security is higher. So that's really important. For example, 
uh, Microsoft's phone has used it. Uh, BlackBerry has oh. been using it for years. Interesting. Um, and I mean, and it's 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 a well-known technology. In fact, DNS Curve, which is the it, 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 it is the encrypted DNS technology. It's all ECC based, huh. elliptic curve crypto based. Huh. So to give you a sense, we were we were recently talking about how 1024 bit keys are being are being well, you know, they're still in active use. But for example, they're regarded as you know a new a new RSA public key ought to be 2048. I had to, for example, use 2048-bit keys when I got my extended validation certificate. EV certs have to be 2048. And Microsoft, as our listeners may remember from a recent news blurb, is in, I think it's next month, they will be, they will be formally removing support for RSA crypto shorter than 1024. There are some 768-bit RSA things still around. They're removing that from XP Service Pack 3 and on um, in August. So, so, um, so 2048 bits is where we're moving to under RSA. But get this, 256-bit elliptic curve provides comparable security to 3072-bit oh, RSA. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, so only 256 bits of ECC public key provides about the same security as one and a half times the bit length of 2048, which is 3072. So, and the reason... Windows Phone and BlackBerry and other people are moving towards ECC is, again, th those are lower-powered systems, and they need the benefit of that greater gain. Essentially, it's you get, you get more protection for less cycles with elliptic, uh, elliptic curve crypto than you do with, with RSA partly because you're able to get more security with a shorter key and key length is directly proportional to complexity as as we've talked about when you go to from 1024 to, to from 1024 to 2048 you get a a, a large scaling of comp, of computational complexity so you'd like to keep the the public key sh as short as possible yet not sacrifice security so ECC it's well known the I mean it's been around for many many years the you know the these very conservative crypto technologies take a while to happen RSA's patents for example on the RSA technology they they, they those patents expired in in the year 2000 there's that that was done so long ago so you know RSA is well known elliptic curve is less well known but it it is present in the various crypto toolkits now, so it's available and anyone can use it without concern. Um, as far as we know, it's absolutely solid. Sometime that might be a good uh, to go into detail for uh, yeah how that works. Yeah, exactly how it works. It's a little bit of math. Yep. 
Uh, Abby Beckert in Cairns, Australia, waxes thoughtfully about browser session cookies. I'm a web developer, and I've noticed Chrome Firefox remembers cookies more than IE Safari. I don't know what that means, but uh, maybe you can explain. But my question is, how long should a session cookie last? If you're reading your email and have three tabs open in Safari, and if RAM is low, iOS and sometimes OS X will suspend Safari to disk, then relaunch Safari again with the same memory. If you restart your iPad or iMac, they're suspended to disk and reopened as is. In OS X, Safari forgets the session cookies over a restart. It tells you the kernel is it, it, te- it, oh, it tells the kernel it's not capable of being closed, reopened in low RAM situations. I bet this will change soon, hmm. he says. But Chrome on a Mac and Safari and iOS can be terminated without losing cookies. I get it. So these are the session cookies that are well. We've talked about them before. I'll let you. Exactly. Explain. In a world where an app cannot, in a world where an app cannot <laughs> be expected to be running at all times, perhaps that browser window is just a screenshot. And the app, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised, really. And the app has been quietly killed until you click it. When should session cookies be erased? And what about the reverse problem of users who never close their browser? I might leave a tab open on my iPad for two years. Never closing it or the iPad. Should that cookie be revoked or never be revoked? My conclusion is servers should simply expire cookies after inactivity, period. That is what I recently did when refactoring how our servers handle session cookies. Two hours without reading a cookie, it gets deleted from the server. Clients can keep them for years if they want to, but the server will give them a new one if they try to use it. Abby, interesting question. Yeah, now this follows from our discussion about my recent discovery that only IE honors what we have traditionally thought of as session cookies. You know, when you close IE, and that was following on from a user in a Q&A, like probably two back, saying, hey, you know, Microsoft didn't impress me with their support when they said, you know, close IE and that'll that'll flush your existing login sessions. And it turns out that Firefox silently changed the behavior of what we've always thought of as session cookies. I mean, I guess I'm, you know, I've been programming HTML for more than a decade and I'm old school. Session cookie means session. It means it's never written to the disk. By definition, it is never written to the disk. Well, browsers kind of went off the reservation. They all started cheating, except IE. Chrome preserves them. Safari preserves them. Firefox preserves them. Unless you, in in the case of Firefox, as we talked about, I think it was last week, go into about colon config and manually override and push it back to its behavior before version 4. Back old, good old version 3.6 that many of us stayed with for a long time was honoring session cookies. But what happened was so many web-centric systems are now using session cookies for their their logon authentication that users were being inconvenienced. And as we talked about back when we were discussing this with Firefox, Leo, you'll, you'll remember Firefox tends to crash. And so when it restarts, it was losing all of its logons which was upsetting people more than having them be more sticky. So the behavior got changed. So um, as it happens, 
I have come to the same conclusion that Abby has with when my own use of of cookies, for example, when I when when my employees are roaming and and need to log into our uh, our backend database in order to per- per perform like customer service functions, um, the the cookies that I am continually providing them contain a timestamp, and if if the server ever receives one that is aged more than an hour in my case because of the kind of work that they're doing you know they're either doing things or they're not if if the server makes a request containing an expired cookie then i require them to reauthenticate i say oops uh and i mean i don't you know i just tell them they have to log in again essentially and so as long as they're actively using the application they get to stay there um, if at any period of time they don't log out but they stop using it, then after whatever reasonable amount of time the developer chooses, they we just decide, okay, you know, there's, a, there's enough of a chance that somebody else has come along that you'd like them to reprove who they are. So, you know, we're, we're going to be fighting authentication issues, you know, <laughs> probably for the rest of our lives in this crazy uh, Internet world. But, uh, you know, I thought that this was a useful uh, observation and, and comment from Abby. I think the idea of allowing people to explicitly log out or logging them out and essentially session cookies are no longer being treated as what we used to think of them as, as yeah. session cookies. That's you know? what's really so, happened, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it has. And, and so, so now it's up to the web developer on the server side to recognize that that they could be getting a cookie from a year ago a session cookie from a year ago so they need to take responsibility for assuming that they are sticky a year ago it's true though yeah yeah it's it's funny when when he mentioned he has you know he might have a tab open in sure. iOS. I'm I'm thinking yeah I got a couple sure. stale tabs yeah, yeah and we like never reboot not, anymore right that's all no, that's all ancient not, history yeah. Bill Barnes, Charlotte, North Carolina, wonders what's all that jive about Java. Steve, every other episode or more, you talk about the evils of scripting, but you also <laughs> mention good scripts and bad scripts, especially Java. So this has all left me confused. Could you enumerate in a single place what are the good scripts? You say remove Java unless I need it, but Java's okay because it runs in a safe sandbox. I know there are two computer products called Java, right? Uh, but I don't know how to tell the difference. If I uninstall the program and add and remove programs, will I still be able to edit my blog? Thanks, Bill. Oh, I'll let you do this one. So, okay. Um, <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little tangled in here. Yeah. Um, nobody knows why Netscape named their their client-side... Oh, I know. You do? Yeah. Well, but nobody ahead. but Leo well, I'll knows. tell you why. I know. <laughs> they were literally... There's a whole story about it, but go ahead. Okay. For some reason, which Leo will... <laughs> well, I'll enumerate later. ...shortly explain... <laughs> Netscape named a completely unrelated client-side web browser scripting language JavaScript, though it has nothing to do with 
Java, which is what Sun Computers, Scott McNeely, famously named their interpreted object-oriented set-top box language when they were developing it. So, so what we have is two completely different entities. They run differently. They're treated differently. They're completely different languages. And sadly, they both have Java in their name. One is Java. The other is JavaScript, though JavaScript is not a scripted version of Java. So, so, so there's the first issue of <laughs> problem of number one. Deobfuscation, yes. And by the way, it's no longer, did you know that it's no longer JavaScript? It's ECMAScript? ECMA script. Yeah, it's ECMAScript. Yes. So yes. there. <laughs> so it was originally called Mocha, and, and then later it was called LiveScript. But coincidentally, when Netscape... Wait, 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 wait. You mean in Netscape it was called Mocha? It was, the original code name was Mocha. Okay, so there was a coffee flavor. So there was a coffee flavor, but not they okay. not an intentional confusion with Java. Yeah. Uh, and then it was named LiveScript. That was the official name, I remember. Uh, a guy named Brendan Eich created it. Uh, but it was coincidentally at exactly the same time that Java was deployed in Netscape in a joint release with Sun that they announced that they were going to name its scripting language Java Script. Uh, Some say, according to Wikipedia, the choice has been characterized by many as a marketing ploy by Netscape to give JavaScript the cachet of what was then the hot new web programming language. It's also been claimed, now that's what I believe, the, the former, but it's also been claimed that the language's name is the result of a co-marketing deal between Netscape and Sun in exchange for Netscape bundling Sun's Java runtime with its browser. I it happened, believe it too. It happened at the same time. So... Everybody knew what was what they were doing, <laughs> and it and it's confused people ever since. And I do believe that's why uh, they've changed the name to ECMAScript. Uh, ECMA is a is a larger industry group. That yeah, I, I, my feeling, my own reading on that is that it's that it really is becoming a standard language. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I'm you know the you, like I was just talking about proficient in it. Yeah, actually, yeah. I've been coding a lot in the last few days. I'll be showing some people some stuff of, that I've been doing uh, before long. Uh, I, I, and so my sense is it has outgrown the browser. And, yes. you know, for example, it's supported in Windows now separately, you know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah so so I, I'm really glad that it has, has become standardized. It is moving forward. It is maturing. Uh, it, it has a lot of positive things to be said about it. Now, unfortunately, we have. If Bill thought he was confused before, <laughs> we haven't helped. But there, no. but it's a very important, and we say this a lot. Java does not equal JavaScript. They're right in no way related, except for the fact that Sun and now Oracle owns both names. So, from from a utility standpoint, one of the things that both languages do is allow cross-platform stuff. So, so all the browsers now support the a very much the same implementation of JavaScript. Um, for some reason, Windows and IE still just dragging them, you know, their heels behind, but they're catching up rapidly. So, 
web servers don't have to care where they're serving the page to. Java is a plugin. Now that so that's and that's a key concept. JavaScript is built into the browser. Java is a plugin. It's kind of like a PDF reader is a plugin for most browsers, although they're beginning to support PDFs natively also. But there are, you know, so like it's sort of like an add-on. What what Java provides is also cross-platform compatibility where it'll you can write the same code and run it on a Mac and on a Windows machine and under Linux and under Sun, you know, uh, different systems. However, one of the things that Java provides is much more power. Um, You can do networking stuff. That famous, um, uh, the buffer bloat uh, uh, packet delay meter application you'll probably remember i can't i'm not the one that uh that they designed that, that measures the amount of packet delay and and buffer bloat that you've got in your network connection netalyzer yep. netalyzer yes was written in java because and i mean it's very aggressive in what it's able to do because java is a is a complete programming language whereas javascript is is deliberately constrained. For example, in JavaScript, you cannot save something to your computer. It, it's they've 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 deliberately kept it for doing browser visual things, um, and and it, but it's unable to write files to your PC. Java can do that, and so while while technically they're both sandboxed in as much as they don't have lots of freedom. Java's sandbox, the Java plugin sandbox, is to keep it to keep its behavior constrained. Yet, if the programmers want it to do aggressive things like you know, like be a botnet, for example, it could completely do that. Whereas JavaScript doesn't have the ability to do those sorts of things, or the, or the Java plugin could write files to your system and and often does whereas javascript deliberately is constrained so so to answer your question bill could you uninstall the program in add remove programs if add remove programs shows java then that's the plugin and you can definitely remove it and still be able to edit your blog since your blog editing would certainly be done in JavaScript using JavaScript, not the Java plugin. And, and the Java plugin has been a constant source of security problems in the past. Can you think of anything else I had left out, Leo? No, I think you, you, <laughs> you nailed it, baby. I'm sure you didn't help. Uh, no, our, uh, um, Bill yeah. didn't, has no idea what you're talking about. But that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Listen to this over and over again. Maybe the transcription that will help. Yeah, and unfortunately, it is. I mean, this just demonstrates it's intentionally how- confusing. They did it that way. How messed up it is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, once upon a time, it helped both of their interests. Yeah. And um, yeah, it really was. I, I don't marketing. think we're ever not going to call it JavaScript. I mean, that that's a name that's going to stick. Well, we, ECMA, I mean, ECMA is the worst name ever. ECMA. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it sounds yicky. 
it could be it sounds like script. a skin was, disease. I, I have ECMA script. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you can get a salve for that. Yeah. <sighs> but I agree with you. You know, and by the way, ECMA script, I mean, we're going to get emails from people saying, well, you know, technically, ECMA script. Yeah, there's, well, there's JavaScript, there's JScript, there's ActionScript, there's a lot of these things. And ECMA, I think, going forward is going to be the standards body and is going to determine what it is. And that's, frankly, what we need is a unified yes. standard. Yes. On the lighter side, Kevin uh, Gadiani in Overland Park, Kansas says, Mailbag? <laughs> what is this mailbag of which you speak? If you, as you and Leo stated, most of the people listening are school folk from assigned reading, wouldn't the term mailbag predate them by at least 10 years? <laughs> He's saying, it's like dial the phone. When is the last time you saw a dial? Being older than most of them at age 25, I could say when you speak of the mailbag, I'm only familiar with one because of the old TV shows and movies from when I was a kid. You know, when people used to actually handwrite and postal mail letters to each other. I guess it's a bit like the way Leo's able to read a book with his eyes closed. So I'm curious, then, why use the term mailbag? Kevin Gadiani. By the way, he says, I'm aware the term inbox is also showing its age. Because of the methodology of email, this terminology still fits. I'm also where I wrote this email in the form of a letter. Thank you, second grade teacher. You know, it's not just mailbag. There's all sorts of anachronistic. Dial the phone is one. You know, I use the term to a couple of Starbucks baristas who were, you know, in their teens. Yeah. I, I use the term asleep at the switch. Yeah. And I thought, you know, they have no idea what that's. That, but they, they know what it means. They don't know where it comes from. Right, right, right. Look right. at, have you ever said the whole nine yards? Do you know what that means? That's an that's a complete anachronism, but everybody knows what it means. Sh I shot my wad. <laughs> People think no, it's not sexual. People think that right, something right. it's not. It has to do with nope. hand loaded yep. muskets. Yep, sticking gunpowder down. Back to the Revolutionary War. Yeah. So I don't think it's unusual. I think that's how language evolves. And what's interesting is that in fact these anachronistic phrases, which have lost all meaning. Uh, at least in terms still of... Still maintain their context or, exactly. or, or their... They've lost all context. Right. They maintain meaning. Right. Yeah. Right. Isn't that... Fa I think that's fascinating. It so is. I don't know about mailbag. I don't know if that's one of them. I, well, I don't know. People, I think, I wonder... Yeah, I was I was remembered. I, I, when, I, when I was reading that, I immediately pictured, you know, a scene from Andy of Mayberry. I think that's where <laughs> I remember... Hey, Opie! Mail the mail's in! <laughs> <laughs> And the bag slung over his shoulder yeah. <laughs> in his little gray mailman outfit. So the whole nine yards, of course, means they everything, right? The total, the total thing. But no one actually is sure what the origin of that is. I was going to say, Leo, I don't know where that yeah. comes from, the whole nine yards. Because uh, well, that's such a, I mean, it's like, it's not like the ninth hole. That would be, that's obviously a golfing reference, but I don't know if ninth hole means anything. Some people say it's it, it, uh, attributed to the length of a machine gun belt, nine yards long. So if you shot all nine yards of the machine gun belt, this is from World War II vintage aircraft, hmm. that that would be it. However, nobody said that until 40 years after the war ended, so it seems unlikely. <laughs> the other argument is that nine yards is a cubic measure refers to the volume of a cement mixer. But in fact, that doesn't work either. Or Dump graves. the whole nine yards. Yep. Yeah, or the length of a bolt of cloth or a sari. <laughs> the, 
the, the structure of certain sailing vessels, and American football, none of which make any sense at all. So we're all saying it, and we have no, no idea. No idea, and so that's what I think is going to happen to mailbag. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, see, London Bob's in the chat room saying, no, no, it's a naval term. Well, we don't know. Go read the Wikipedia article on the whole nine yards, and you can see that no one really knows. It's, it, 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 they call it um, a etymological mystery. Ooh, nice. The most prominent <laughs> etymological riddle of our time. <laughs> <laughs> and you heard it here, folks. And you heard it. But it, what's interesting, it wasn't used until the 60s. Maybe someone just made it up. Doesn't really, it never had. I think somebody meaning? like Dvorak made it up and said, <laughs> yeah. let's see <laughs> if they'll adopt this. <laughs> exactly. Foisted on an unsuspecting public. Now, you know, hoisted on your own petard, the Shakespearean line, that a petard was an explosive device. And to be hoisted by one's own petard was to be blown up by one's own device. Hmm. Now, I think... Hoisted. Hoisted, because yeah. it lifted in the air. <laughs> but I think, unfortunately, that is a term that has become an anachronism. I don't think you. I, could, I don't think I could say to a young person, hey, you have been hoisted upon your own petard, and they would have no, any idea. No, I think idea. at that point they would lock Grandpa up. <laughs> Grandpa, get off my lawn! <laughs> one more, one more, one more, and then we'll wrap this thing up. From Scott Vant Land... I hope I'm saying that right. Vantland in Colehurst, Alberta, Canada. A little password humor. We sh we sure can use a little password uh, humor. Very very little password humor, actually. <laughs> hey, you included it in I the mailbag. Steve, love the show. Listen every week and all the discussion about secure passwords. I saw this joke. Thought you might find it amusing. A large company was doing a security audit of current passwords and found one that was unusually long. When they asked the employee why the password was Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Huey, Dewey, Louie, Donald, Sacramento, she explained, oh, I was told it had to be seven characters in a capital. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Mickey, Minnie, Huey, Gooey, Dewey, Louie, Donald, and Sacramento. Yeah. Um, this, this, I have to, you know. It's good. This lets everyone know that I read my Twitter feed. This is about three months ago. I got just flooded with this. And I don't know, again, if it was XKCD or, or XCKD or whatever, whoever that guy is. I don't know where it appeared. Love him. But yeah. our listeners all oh, thought yeah. this was really funny or at least thought I would think so. And, and I avoided <laughs> mentioning it until now. And, and for some reason, I thought, well, okay, I'm just in a mood today. So... We'll share the seven characters. And I actually, these don't strike me as Sleeping Beauty's uh, seven dwarves. No, there's but, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse. Yeah. There's Goofy, who's another. And he wasn't one of the seven dwarves. Huey, Dewey, and Louie are the Donald Duck's uh, nephews. Well, and they were also the three uh, robots on that wonderful. Oh, you're right. Wow, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, with the you, Bruce Dern. Yep. Where he's the gardener in the, I forgot the name of that. I'm sure the chat yeah, room will tell us in a moment. The space gardener. Yep. And then Donald, of course, is their silent running. Thank you, Tef yep, Man in India. Running. They're fast. And Sacramento, of course, the capital of the state of California. Yeah. So <laughs> seven characters and the capital. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Actually pretty secure. You know, it's a great password, especially if you capitalize, you use commas. Yeah. That's a, excellent. Yeah. You might put an ampersand in there just to really throw them. 
Yeah, you do at Sacramento. At the Sacramento. There we go. <laughs> Steve Gibson's at grc.com. Actually, I think, we, I think that probably pretty much describes the uh, Senate that we have. Huey, Louie, exactly. and Dewey. <laughs> Manny, yeah. Moe, and Mike. Goofy, Mickey, and Goofy. <laughs> now, we can't get political, Steve. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But I share your sentiments. And actually, I don't think there's anybody in the land who doesn't. <laughs> Uh, we do this show every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC, on twit.tv. It's fun to watch live if you want, but uh, if, you, if you can't, man, we make it available in a lot of ways. And, I, and I'm not calling this a podcast, although it is. I'm saying on demand. How about that? How about that for modern? On demand, as needed, when you want it, where you want it, in audio and video. In fact, Steve... For the 16 kilobit folks, the po folks with limited bandwidth makes a 16 kilobit version available at his site, grc.com, and a text transcript, which is really lightweight. You can find that at grc.com. The feedback. Wait, wait, wait. What, do you mean, what do you mean, lightweight? Nothing lighter weight than text. <laughs> Eight bit, seven bit, probably ASCII. Oh, and it compresses down. Really compresses small. like mm, beautiful. Yeah. How big have you looked at that? I mean, really, after compression, it's just a few kilobytes, probably. Yeah, it's nothing. Nothing! Nothing! You can read it with your eyes closed. <laughs> you can also get uh, SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, there, grc.com. And don't forget, if you've got a question, we do these every other episode, so you can put your questions on the form there at grc.com slash feedback. He's got information about sci-fi, about diets, about uh, secure passwords. You mentioned the password uh, haystack. Uh, haystack page. That's grc.com slash haystacks.htm. Yep. But it's all in the menu. It's easy to find. You can get uh, audio, uh, higher quality audio and video of the show as well at our site, twit.tv slash sn. Or, you know, it is a podcast. So if you subscribe, you'll get it every week automatically in whatever form you choose. And never any charge. Thanks to our fine sponsors. Next week, do you know what we're uh, going to do? I don't, but I think we ought to follow this goofy episode up with something really <laughs> seriously deep and uh, and propeller winding. Okay. So I'm going to come up. I'm going to come up with a good one. You got it. Okay. Exciting. Thank you, Steve. Thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.